All right, friends. Well, hey, go ahead and open up a Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 2. Again, Exodus chapter 2. If you have uh, a hard copy Bible with you, great. If you want to follow along on your phone, great. If you need a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you. And I want to encourage you to open up. You're going to need to look at something because we're not going to have the words on the screen, okay? So everyone's going to need to follow along in their own copy as we continue uh, this fall series that we're doing and actually probably will go beyond the fall uh, called Out of Egypt, Studying the Book of Exodus Little by Little. This is week three and a big thank you to Pastor Lee for preaching last week from the book of Genesis, right? A little break from our Exodus series. Yeah, it was great to hear from Pastor Lee. Uh, and he did that on short notice because, again, we got the call uh, midweek about uh, some changes in our family. Again, you might know that we became foster parents, and so we have a new little guy in the house. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you for your support, your prayers. We just feel so loved. And uh, having, having two kids in the house as opposed to one is, it's more work. So, so to, the, to the parents of multiple kids, uh, I don't know how you do it. So we're still adjusting. But anyways, Lee stepped in when we were adjusting and kind of a, a crazy week for us. So thank you to him for preaching. And we snuck in still to see the baptisms because those are just so, so exciting. Such a special day last week to see so many young people getting baptized. So anyways, today, hey, we're back. We're in Exodus uh, chapter two, where we're gonna continue this series. You know, this week as I was preparing, I read and came across this interview uh, with pastor, popular uh, Christian uh, thinker, uh, Dallas Willard, maybe you know the name. He's uh, written on spiritual formation and growth in Christ and just a really uh, godly man. He's written a lot. And he was being interviewed by a pastor. A pastor was asking Dallas Willard, hey, if you could recommend one thing I do in my life to help me grow in my relationship with God, what would you recommend? What would be the one thing, Dallas Willard, that you would recommend I do in order to kind of revitalize my walk with the Lord? Take a minute, turn to someone next to you and share, what do you think Dallas Willard said? What do you think was his one suggestion to this pastor who asked him? Take a second, go ahead, turn, share what you think he might have said. Don't be shy. Good. All right. I'm sure some good answers were shared there. Uh, this pastor who was interviewing Dallas Willard, he, he wrote and he said, it was shocking how simple Dallas Willard's response was. He was shocked by the simplicity because Dallas Willard looked him in the eye and responded, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because hurry is the great enemy of your spiritual life today. So you got one suggestion, one recommendation. Dallas Willard said it would be eliminate hurry. Do less. Slow down. Right? Take things out of your schedule. Eliminate hurry. Now, you might not agree with that answer. Maybe you would recommend something different. But I think it's noteworthy that this key Christian author and leader would say that. And I was struck by how counterintuitive his answer was. Like really the key to growth, uh, the key to a revitalized relationship with the Lord following Jesus is to do less? Like to slow down? 
to eliminate hurry, man, wouldn't we say things that are kind of the exact opposite? Like to grow in your relationship with the Lord, well, you should do more, right? Like more spiritual things. Fill up your schedule, more church, more habits, go to conferences, read more books, I don't know, do, listen to a good podcast. Like we'd say, do more, but his answer was the exact opposite. Eliminate hurry. I mean, that wouldn't even make the top five of our list, right? <laughs> that wouldn't even make the top five. And that interaction made me think about just how often God's ways, the way God works in our lives and in the world, uh, they're so counterintuitive, right? God's ways to us seem upside down, seem backwards, seem like they go against our expectations, right? Because today, don't we expect God to work in kind of the big, exciting, spectacular ways? Like that's where we expect to see God when things are moving and shaking. That's where God is. These uh, powerful, visible examples of his work. That's where we expect to find God. And yet, what we're going to find throughout the Bible, but especially in Exodus chapter 2, we're about to read, often God's work is the opposite. It's overlooked. It's unseen. It's unassuming. We have to look closely to find it. Let's jump into the text, and I'll show you what I mean. Exodus chapter 2, again, just picking up where we left off from two weeks ago. It says this, Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, if you've been following along with us and you remember chapter one, we saw what? The people of God were in slavery in Egypt. And we saw kind of this big picture, sweeping description of how the people were oppressed, how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was working against the people of God to murder them and to specifically murder the sons of Israel. And now in chapter 2, we're kind of zooming in and not as much looking at the big picture oppression and slavery of the people of God, but we're looking at this one family, this one couple, and this one baby. This couple marries in verse 1 from the tribe of Levi, the text tells us she gives birth to a son, and this nota, or excuse me, normally would be cause for joy and celebration. A child has been born, and yet we see the circumstances are pretty terrible. Something's not right because this mother has to hide her child. Verse 2 tells us this because, you remember how chapter 1 ended? Pharaoh issues this decree to all of Egypt that every Hebrew baby male that was born was to be thrown into the Nile and killed. Pharaoh was threatened by God, threatened by what God was doing with his people and started to actively work against the Israelites in a murderous way. And so we think, what a horrific circumstance for this child to be born into. What a terrifying set of days for this new mother, this healthy baby boy that's born under a death sentence. And she has to hide the child to prevent him from being found. I mean, it makes us think of, of Nazi Germany and things like the diary of Anne Frank, right? Where Jews were in hiding, fearing for their lives, that someone would find them and they'd be taken away and killed. So here, for three months, this child is hidden. 
This mother is afraid that the Egyptians nearby are going to kick down her door, find the child, and take him away. I mean, for three months, he's small enough, sleeps enough, doesn't move around enough that they can kind of keep him out of sight. He wouldn't be found out. But if you've been around kids, you know they get bigger and louder and harder to conceal. And so it reaches a point in verse 3 where she could hide him no longer. You look as the text continues. She could hide him no longer. She got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So this mother reaches a point of desperation. Her young son would be found out soon enough and killed. And so she places him in a prepared boat of sorts, a basket that she's... Uh, made waterproof essentially with these elements, tar and pitch, and places the child in the basket in the Nile River. This would be an act of faith, but it would also be an act of desperation for a mother who has no other option. And if we think about it, this step doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Like, why in the world would she do that? But in the ancient world, this act, placing a child along the bank of the river, Uh, could be, some commentators think, an equivalent of taking a child to an orphanage today or dropping off a child on the footsteps of a a fire station today. This act of, of desperation, giving over this child that could not be cared for in his current situation, essentially giving up this child to the hand of providence, to the hand of, of God or the gods, depending on who the person was in the ancient world. So this mother, out of desperation, places the child in the river. It's not safe, though, right? It's a a desperate action. How in the world will this few-month-old baby boy survive on the Nile River of all places while left alone? Story continues, verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So our story seems to go from bad to worse as this baby born under a death sentence, given up to the hand of fate on the Nile River, now is found by who of all people? Pharaoh's daughter. Again, Pharaoh, the man who wants this baby killed, the man who wants this baby and all the other Hebrew babies killed, it's his daughter that finds him. Now, Pharaoh didn't exactly have a tidy nuclear family back then, like it was Pharaoh and his wife, and he was faithful to his wife, and they had two and a half kids and a goldfish and a Netflix subscription, and everything was great. It wasn't exactly like that, okay? So we we don't really know, okay, the daughter of Pharaoh, how how close was she to her father? Like, is this, you know, there's probably many, many children of Pharaoh running around in his household. But she would know, nonetheless, what was expected of her in a situation like this. She would know the decree of the king of Egypt that this child was supposed to die, that this child should be tossed in the river. So it's a, a dark moment in the story. But there's an unexpected turn, you notice. Pharaoh's daughter has compassion. She feels sorry for this child. And then it turns out she's not alone. You see what happens in verse 7? 
Then his sister, whose sister? The child's sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes. Go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. And so the woman took the baby and nursed him. It appears that the child's sister had been watching nearby, keeping a watchful eye over this basket on the river, seeing what would happen to him. And he gets found. And right as he does, she quickly interjects. She sees this moment to speak into the situation. And she says to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, I got an idea. Let's go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this child. And we have to believe that she didn't have just a general sense of any Hebrew woman who would do this. She was thinking of one in particular, wasn't she? The child's mother. And she goes and she gets the child's mother and brings her. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, take this child, nurse this child, raise this child essentially for a few years, and I'm going to pay you to do it. It's an amazing reversal in the story. Verse 10, then the child grows older. It says she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and, and he became her son. So his mother nurses the child, raises the child, and then as he gets older, he goes back to Pharaoh's daughter. It says she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. The child grows Again, after a few years goes and is raised in Pharaoh's household and is named Moses. And if you're familiar with the Pentateuch, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, then the name Moses means a lot. He's one of the most important figures in the entire Old Testament. And he would be used by God to deliver the people out of slavery in Egypt. So we've done this quick flyover of the story, right? Verses 1 through 10, we've looked at the story, made some brief comments about what was going on in the narrative. But what I want to do now is go back and look at these 10 verses and highlight some of the key details, some of the key details that we see going on that really tell us about God, key details that explain to us who God is and how God works. So we have to go back and look closer to see what we're supposed to get from this text. And the first thing is this, what you probably notice is that the child, Moses, and his mother find themselves in an impossible situation. Right? There's a seemingly impossible situation. This incredibly dark hour, Pharaoh has issued a death sentence for every male child born to the Hebrews. And then for Moses, each step in the story makes things darker and worse and more desperate. Moses is placed in a basket along the Nile River. That's not good. And then Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, and that's not good, we think. But at each turn in the story, God reverses. God takes an impossible situation, and he brings about his work through it. In each circumstance, God is sovereignly directing the events of the story and the events of history. And notice again, as we read throughout the text, all the reversals that take place. First, this Hebrew boys were supposed to be thrown into the Nile River to be killed, right? That's what Pharaoh said at the end of chapter one. Moses is placed on the Nile River, and that is how he is saved. So he's tossed in the river, but not to his death, 
It's the way of salvation for Moses. Then, verse 5, Moses is found by the daughter of the man who wanted him and all the other babies killed. And yet, rather than being killed, that is how God protects Moses. Verse 9, Moses is returned to his mother, and she gets to nurse him and raise her own child. This child that she had just said goodbye to comes back with pay, with a paycheck. Okay, that's incredible reversal. And then verse 10, Moses is taken into Pharaoh's court. He's raised in the household of Pharaoh. He's, he's given a world-class education, the best training that the world could offer that I'm sure God used to form this man into the leader that he one day would be to lead God's people out of Egypt. And so for the thoughtful reader, right, as we go back and just think about those details, think about those kind of ironic twists and turns that the story takes. It makes us smirk and say, Who's really in charge here? Right, we see the power of Pharaoh, the commands of Pharaoh, the might of the world, and yet God, each step of the way, is subtly reversing things so that his plans and purposes continue. Only God could bring about such reversals. And God wants us to see this, how though things look so impenetrable, though the strength of the world seems so great, it's no match for the sovereign hand of God guiding history. So God reverses seemingly impossible situations. And he's done this before, right? If we think back to the book of Genesis when God told Abram that he would be a father of many nations, told Abram and Sarah they would have many descendants, that they would have a son, this child of promise. Abraham said what? Uh, we're really old. How's that going to work? Right? My wife is barren. That's not going to work. But eventually, what happens? The child of promise is born. God fulfills his word in a seemingly impossible situation. I mean, after Abraham made some poor life choices, but that's another story. That's another sermon. But God fulfilled his word out of a seemingly impossible situation. And we see that pattern throughout scripture in Genesis here, in Exodus, and on and on. If we read in the New Testament, God reverses impossible situations, and that's important for us to see because some of us come in today and it feels like we're looking out at an impossible situation in our life. We look at the world around us or we look within and it feels desperate. Maybe we've lost hope. Maybe we wonder, like genuinely, genuinely, can God use me? Is, is God at work in my life? Because based on my past or the way that I, I seem to, to mess things up in the present, I'm just wondering, can God use me? Is God in this? Or does God look at someone like me with a past like mine or present struggles like I have and say, can't use you, disqualified? And the text is showing us that God can redeem. Even in the darkest, most impossible situations, God is at work. And sometimes God takes the very things that we think will destroy us and he uses them for our growth, transformation, formation, healing. And he uses us in the world. How many of us know people who've experienced great tragedy, great illness, great loss? And though they would never wish to go through that again, God used it in their life and allowed them to, to reach people and engage with people facing similar situations, similar loss, uses them to comfort people, to connect with people that they maybe otherwise never would have been able to. God used that and redeemed that and made them 
part of his plan in that way. And so Exodus 2 shows us his continued work, even when things seem desperately lost. But we also have to look at this passage, and this is really important, and see how God brings about this reversal. How does God bring about such a striking reversal in the text, in these impossible situations? This gets back to the counterintuitive ways of God that we talked about in the introduction. Okay, look back at the text, verse 3. It says, But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Okay, again, zoom out. Chapter 1, slavery, oppression, Pharaoh seeking to, to murder and kill off the Israelites. And the salvation plan now in chapter 2 rolls out. And here's how it rolls out. A baby in a basket on the Nile River. Think about that. Here's how it rolls out. A baby born under a death sentence in Egypt, now abandoned, floating down the Nile River. That's the plan, okay? And I don't think there was like a lifeguard on duty on the bank of the Nile, okay? There wasn't like a whitewater rafting guide helping baby Moses in his basket. I don't even think the mother put floaties on him, okay? He's in trouble here. Doesn't that seem so fragile? Doesn't that seem so incredibly fragile that that's how God chooses to work? And then he's found by Pharaoh's daughter of all people. And the whole plan, the whole plan is dependent upon the whim of Pharaoh's daughter, right? To have compassion on this child. We're just hoping that she doesn't do what she was told to do and toss the child in the river. We're banking on a moment of compassion from Pharaoh's daughter, and she does have compassion on this child. But really? That's the plan? The plan's that fragile. Baby, basket, river, compassion of this woman. So many things could go wrong. And yet we see that that is how God chooses to work. God delights in rolling out his plans that to us seem fragile, seem weak, seem foolish even. And yet that is how God chooses to work and it brings him great glory. Usually what happens though is we, we miss this. We, we, we don't see God in these small fragile plans. Truly, the plans aren't fragile at all because God's hand is guiding them, but from our perspective, they seem that way. We're used to, though, looking for God in the miraculous, right? In the, in the spectacular. Like, where is God today? Well, he's, he's in the big things, the exciting things, the things everyone is talking about, the movers and the shakers of the world. That's where God is. Isn't that why we watch shows like Shark Tank? I mean, not to find Jesus. Like, I don't think people are out there like, I want to find Jesus, Shark Tank, here we go. That's not what I mean. But we want to find what? Like the next big thing, the next big product or invention that's going to revolutionize the world, uh, the next big star on America's Got Talent or on American Idol or whatever, The Voice competition show that you watch, right? The next big thing or the next big piece of technology that Apple's going to roll out at their yearly keynote address. What's the next big thing that's going to change the world? What's the next big thing that everyone's going to be talking about? What's big? What's popular? We're a celebrity culture, right? What are the stars talking about? 
What are the popular people saying on, on Twitter or their Instagram profiles? It's hard for us to see God in the small things. And yet, this text shows us that's where God is working. That's where God's moving. But here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do with a, a book like Exodus is we just want to fast forward. We're like, hey, expository preaching, chapter by chapter, that's cool and all, but can we like speed it up and get to, you know, the plagues? Like the, the really powerful acts of God where we see his mighty hand against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Or we, can, we, can we fast forward to when he uh, parts the Red Sea and the people cross over on dry land? Like this miraculous event i got some people in my life that are kind of bugging me. Can we like fire up those plagues again, God, and bring, bring that part back? Or i got this situation I'm in that I really want out of, and I want out of it quick. God, so can we do the whole like Red Sea thing again? And can you bring me out of there? We're looking for the big, the miraculous. Can we just skip over this whole baby in the basket, fragile weakness thing? And see, here's the deal. Sometimes God works in, in the big, miraculous ways. Sometimes God works that way. Sometimes God brings transformation in your life or in certain situations, and it seems like it's overnight. It seems like it's night and day. He changes you. He changes us. He changes situations. Sometimes God does that. But we would be in error if we begin to think and assume that that's always how God works. Because God's hand is just as present in guiding this fragile baby boy down the Nile River. He's just as present there as he is when he parts the Red Sea years later. And so we need to learn, I need to learn, to look and find God in the small things. When his plans are easy to overlook, easy to miss. And so the question for us is, where do we need to find God working in the small things in our life. Maybe you're here this morning and there's frustration in your life. You're disillusioned with God because you're expecting some big and flashy and instantaneous change in your heart or in your family or in some situation. But God instead is gonna work through your life with small steps, gradual growth through a process of transformation and he's asking you to, to remain patient and see his hand in, in the daily changes, in the daily steps of obedience, the things that aren't going to be flashy, the things that we're probably not going to post online, but he's there anyways. Sometimes we come to Jesus and we, we get fired up. Some of us have more of a personality like that, where we get fired up. I want to do something big for Jesus. I want to take the world for Jesus and tell everybody. And God's like, hey, that's great. Can you just maybe spend a few minutes reading your Bible each day? Like, can we start there? Like, I get the big vision. I get where you want to go. But like, can you just read your Bible once a day? Like, let's start there. Or like, I want to tell everyone about Jesus. I want to go and sell everything I have and be a missionary overseas. And God's like, hey, great. Love the big vision. Can you learn to spend time in prayer with me each day? Like, can you learn how to cultivate a life of prayer and, and listen to me on a, on a regular basis? Like, let's start there. I want to do big things for Jesus. And God's like, hey, great, love it. Can we, let's start by being at church more than twice a month, right? Like, let's start there. Can we be faithful in the small things and see how God gradually works in our lives rather than trying to fast forward and skip ahead to the big things? 
Sometimes I want to do big things for Jesus, but our schedule is so packed and so full that we're not available and there's no time to give to the Lord. And so we have this big vision, this big heart. I was like, hey, maybe start by freeing up your schedule a little bit, making yourself available to me. And so we can't just fast forward to the big and the flashy and the exciting. We need to find God in the small, everyday, gradual steps. Because God was working in this situation in ancient Egypt with his baby on the Nile long before the plagues, long before the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, not only are God's plans often small, easy to overlook, but the way God works in the world can be painfully slow. Lee talked about this a little bit last week, right? Sometimes God's timing doesn't go at the rate that we would like. The early chapters of Exodus, think about this, chapters one and two, cover decades. In these short chapters, decades and decades, generations and generations, like not even talking about the the generations of uh, Israelites in slavery before Moses was born, but then from the point that Moses is born until he returns from exile to Egypt and confronts Pharaoh, we're talking 80 years. Decades. Lifetimes. People are being born, living, and dying. And all in these few chapters here. See, this is, this is hard for us because it would be easy for people to ask in that place, like, where is God? Is God fulfilling his promise? Is God doing what he said he was going to do? Because my life is going by and I'm about to die and I haven't seen any change. We look for God in these big moments, in these fast, quick results, but often God works in these small and, and slow ways. I mean, we're an Amazon Prime culture, aren't we? We expect fast, free two-day delivery, sometimes same-day delivery. Can I get an amen? Anybody? Come on! It's, it's changed my life. Maybe it's changed your life, right? Amazon Prime. Sometimes I'm just browsing on Amazon looking for something to buy and I turn around. The delivery guy is in my kitchen making a sandwich. He's like, hey, here's your package. Thought I'd make a sandwich. I'm out. I'm like, how did you do that so fast, right? It's crazy. And so sometimes we expect Amazon Prime efficiency and speed with God. And yet God sometimes chooses to deliver like the Pony Express. Seriously. And that's not an insult to God. It's just, it takes time. God chooses to work in the big picture long-term. It's not always instant. It's not always quick, and that's hard for us. And so what Scripture is trying to do here with this narrative is give us some perspective. Help us think about time differently. Help us see that, you know what? It's possible that we will go our entire lives without getting answers to certain questions. We could go our entire lives without knowing why God allowed something to happen why God didn't intervene in a situation sooner, why God didn't prevent something from happening. We might go our whole lives and never see fruit from that and never see answers and never see redemption. In our whole lifetime, we might never see that. We have to come to terms with that. That's what Exodus 1 and 2 is is showing us. We have to learn to trust God that he is at work, even if it's in unseen ways, Even if it's slower than we would like, he's still there. His plans are moving forward. He's at work in the world and in your life. So Exodus 2 shows us how God works. He reverses impossible situations. 
He works in ways that seem fragile and weak to us. And he often does it slowly. But Exodus 2 also is going to point us forward to the person of Jesus. And I want us to see this here in the text. If you, if you skip ahead to the New Testament, you think about Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus is born. There's a, these parallels between the birth of Moses and the Exodus narrative. Jesus, like Moses, was born under a death sentence. It wasn't Pharaoh, but it was Herod, right, who ordered all the male Hebrew babies to be killed in Bethlehem. And Jesus' life is spared. He's taken away in faith by his parents. And so we see these connections pointing us forward to Jesus that the New Testament authors could look back on and see that this text here in Exodus 2 was to, to prepare us, to help us see what the Savior would be like. Because Moses was the deliverer, the rescuer that God would use to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt in the ancient world. Jesus, likewise, is the plan of salvation, the rescuer for all the world to bring us out, not of literal Egypt, but the Egypt of sin, the Egypt of death. And like Moses in Exodus 2, like his story, the gospel similarly is, is counterintuitive. It's not what we would expect, because how does God choose to redeem the world? Through his death, through a sacrificial death on a cross. He doesn't come in power, and they don't send in the tanks. He comes as a fragile, newborn baby, born to a virgin mother, a teen mother. He's not victorious through military force, a big show of power scaring the Romans. No, he comes in a way that looks like weakness to us. It looks fragile. It looks small. It looks foolish even to many. How does Jesus win? He dies on a cross. How do we get right with God? Not the way we would assume. We work for it. We earn it. We behave. That's not how we get right with God. It's the opposite. We come empty-handed and we receive what Jesus has done for us. We're justified by faith in Christ, not by works. We don't earn righteousness before God. He gives it to us as a gift. But those goes against what we would expect or sometimes what we want. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness. Right? Some people look at the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, and they say, that makes no sense. Why in the world would God do that? That's silly. That's ridiculous. And yet, that is how God saves the world, through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And so, Exodus 2 shows us that God chooses to work in ways that look fragile and look weak to us, but they are strength and his power to transform. And often, excuse me, also he works in impossible situations, right? The world was lost in sin. We were dead in our sins, away from God, running from him without hope on our own. And yet God enters that seemingly impossible situation. And through Jesus, brings us home. Through Jesus, brings us forgiveness, righteousness, restores us to our relationship with God, gives us new hearts. His spirit within us transforms us from the inside out, both now and forever. And so, it's a reminder for us this morning to look to Jesus, not just think about Moses, 
the boy floating on the Nile in a basket, as, as beautiful and amazing as that story is, this true story that tells us about God, it's, it's not meant to stop there. It's meant to point us forward to Jesus, the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate deliverer who saved us from sin and death. And so I encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, let today be that day where you put your trust in him, receive the forgiveness of sins, receive this new heart and this new life, this relationship with the God who loves you. Friends, we're going to come to the table now together as a church family to celebrate Jesus, to remember Jesus as our rescuer, as our deliverer, the one that the story of Moses ultimately pointed forward to. And so we have the elements, the, the bread and the cup representing Jesus' broken body and Jesus' shed blood. We do this in obedience. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. So we come forward to remember our King and our Savior. I invite you, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, to participate with us, meaning if, even if you're, this isn't your church home, even if you're visiting or uh, from out of town, if you have put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. Uh, the music's going to play. We have two stations up front. Uh, the elements are gluten-free, so need, no need to worry there. I'm going to say a short prayer, and then I invite you to participate with us. Jesus, we, we love you, and we are so grateful for your work on the cross, your death for us in our place, for our sins, and your resurrection. And now, through faith in you, we are justified before God. We are made righteous. We are reconciled to you. We are cleansed. So we thank you, Jesus, for doing all of this for us, not through works. We receive this through faith. So we pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified as we come, as we take these elements. We do so with humble hearts, praising you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>